Well, good morning. It is great to be with you all this morning. If you're new to Central, my name is John Gilner, and I serve as one of our executive pastors. I was originally scheduled to preach the, the fifth and the final sermon of this series, but due to our little curveball last week, um, I have been moved up to today, and I am thrilled to be, to be preaching today. And before I get too far, last week, Pastor Tyler mentioned the honey walnut shrimp from Panda Express, you may, you may remember. And later in the week, somebody sent him a gift card from Panda Express. So I just wanted to take a moment to share with you that um, several years ago, Monica and I, we got to go to uh, Maui on our honeymoon. I really enjoyed the pig roast there. So it's been a long time. It's been about 18 years since we've been there. So do, do with that what you will. But anyway, I am excited to be with you all uh, this morning. After all, today we are talking about bread. I love bread. And just to be, just to be sure that um, you don't misunderstand. When I, say, when I say I like bread, I don't want you to think that I kind of like bread or that it's nice to have, you know, as a side for your meal. No, I, I mean I could eat bread for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with some bread snacks in between. Uh, on the way home, I may just stop at Nearing's and grab one of their Portuguese loaves, put some olive oil on it, some kosher salt, and bake that for 10 minutes or so. I, I'm not sure that I would be alive if it were not for bread. We'll, we'll come back to bread in just, in just a few minutes. As you know, the past two weeks, we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer together. I, want, I kind of feel like we should offer you an apology um, if, you've, if you came into this series and thought, finally, they're going to help me to become a better prayer. I can learn how to pray, when to pray, and know exactly what it is that I should say so that God answers all my prayers. If that's what you are hoping for, I'm sorry that that's not what this has been about. A few years ago, I went to what was called the prayer school in Indianapolis. It was led by a fairly well-known pastor by the name of Brian Zond. Brian pastors in St. Joseph, Missouri. And having been uneasy with my own prayer life and wanting to know or hoping that it would become something more, something better, I registered for this prayer school. I wanted my, my prayer life to be like the great prayers that I've read about or like the great saints of the church, the ones I grew up with, the ones who are known as prayer warriors. I wanted to know the tricks, the special sauce. I wanted to get the inside scoop. But Brian began the prayer school with this quote. He said, The primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we think God ought to do, but to be properly formed. If you think about prayer as, as, a, as movement, it's not so much about the, the upward motion of what we are saying to God, but about the downward movement of God's sanctifying grace Primarily, prayer isn't about us giving God our laundry list of things that we want God to do for us. Now, certainly, prayer does involve us confessing to God what it is that we need. We can go to God with the things that, that trouble us or those, thing, those ways that we want God to work. But primarily, prayer is about being properly formed. It's about becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what we've been talking about these last two weeks. In, in the first week, we learned that when we address God in prayer, if we want to know what God is like, we need look no further than Jesus. Jesus is the full revelation of who God is. This Jesus is the hallowed one. To pray and to hallow his name means that our prayer life should be in line with who Jesus is. And then last week, we looked at the second phrase of that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pastor Tyler reminded us that we live in that tension between what has already happened in what has yet to be fulfilled. We live in that tension between the already and the not yet. We live in that tension, that, that messy in between, in between that time, but now Christ has come. Christ has come in that in-between time, 
The kingdom has broken in already. Therefore, we aren't waiting around, biding our time until Christ comes again. Pastor Tyler reminded us that this present life matters. Therefore, we wait in hope. We wait by participating in God's work of restoration. It's an active sort of waiting. That brings us to this week, the middle verse of our passage. In Matthew 6, verse 11, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, Give us today our daily bread. That's it. Six words. We've gone from addressing our holy God and talking about kingdoms to six words about bread. Why in the world would bread be at the center of Jesus' prayer? Of all the things that Jesus could have taught us to pray about, why a request for God to supply us with daily bread? How is this supposed to form us and shape us into the likeness of Jesus? Maybe this is confession time, but I don't like needing things. I'm guessing most of you can relate. And to be honest, sometimes I struggle with people who are needy. If you have kids, you know what I mean. I mean, each day we feed them three times. And then the next day they wake up, they come into our room, and they say that they're hungry again. And it just, it just never stops. Day in and day out, they're needy. There, there's an old movie, if you, maybe you've seen, it's a comedy called What About Bob? You know the kind of, if you've seen this movie, you know the kind of people I'm talking about. In that movie, Bob is a, is a needy guy who desperately wants his new doctor, Dr. Leo Marvin, to help him. I mean, Bob is just so clean. He's the definition of clean. He, he, even find, he goes so far as to find out where Dr. Leo Marvin is going on vacation, and Bob follows him there. Bob finally tracks down Dr. Marvin, falls down on his knees in public, and cries out to the doctor, I need, I need, I need. Bob is a needy person. Most of us just want to escape him, just like Dr. Leo Marvin did. We're uncomfortable with need. We like to be self-sufficient. We like to be in control, and so we organize our lives about, around not being in need. We do everything we can to put ourselves in a position so that we don't need others. In fact, it kind of bothers us when other people are needy. We don't want their needs encroaching on what we have. I mean, we've secured enough for ourselves. Why can't they? This, this runs deep in human nature. The idols of self-sufficiency and control have captured us and won't let go. Probably the, the key story to understanding this section of the Lord's Prayer is, is the story of God's people in the wilderness following their exodus from Egypt. In the book of Exodus, chapter 16 and 17, we find God's people as they are making their way out of Egypt. For 400 years, God's people were enslaved under Pharaoh. Every day was the same. They were just kind of cogs in a machine. Their identity was caught up in what they could make or produce for Pharaoh. And so each day was about how many bricks they could produce, brick after brick after brick. They were fed solely so that they could produce more bricks for Pharaoh and enlarge his storehouses. But the Hebrew people grew tired of this. Under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, the people cried out to God and God heard their cries. God called to Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and into a new land, a land full of promise that was full of good food. But the people find themselves in between these places. And their bellies begin to rumble and their throats get dry. So they did what all of us would do in this situation. They get hangry and they grumble. If you don't know what hangry means or it looks like, come to my house just prior to dinner time and you will see it on full display. Moses takes, he, Moses takes their grumblings to God. And God has Moses throw a stick into the, into the bitter water and it becomes drinkable. Out of nothing, God provides. 
Well, their hunger returns, and the people again grumble against Moses and against God. They, they wish that they had never left Egypt where they could claw and work their way into providing some small amount of food for themselves. The drudgery of slave, of slave labor was preferable to this life on the move in the wilderness. At least there, they knew when they would eat. They knew they would eat there. That at least gave them some sense of control. Well, God once again heard their cries and poured down bread from heaven. In the middle of the wilderness, grace poured down. The people didn't even have the language to describe this gift of manna, which in Hebrew means, what is it? Have you ever, have you ever been there? When God does something so beyond your comprehension that you don't even have the words to describe it. The Hebrew people were so used to life with their heads down, cranking out brick after brick after brick, that, that when God sent manna from the skies, they looked up and all that they could say is, what is that? Well, God told the people to take enough of the manna for their family each day, and then on the, on the sixth day, they were to take enough for the seventh day. And so, in so doing, they were to honor the Sabbath and to enjoy God's rest. If only that's how it had gone. Exodus sixteen twenty seven says, Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. You may have heard one of us preachers say before, it's one thing to get the, the people out of Egypt, but it's a whole other thing to get the Egypt out of the people. They had been so foreign and shaped by life in Egypt that they just simply reverted to their old ways. They tried stockpiling, and then they tried to collect when God said not to. But when they did, the food rotted and spoiled. You can't stockpile God's generosity and gifts for yourselves. Dr. Dan Boone, the president of Trevecca Nazarene University, and who will um, who'll actually be our speaker this fall for spiritual renewal, he wrote about this, and he has this great quote in which should be up on the screens for you. Dr. Boone says, those who live under Egypt's scarcity will never have enough. So they will work, work, work to collect more, more, more to secure themselves so that they will never be needy. This is what Egypt does to us. It robs us of our humanity. We start believing that it's a bad thing to be needy, so we anxiously stockpile manna to secure ourselves in this world of scarce resources. We don't pray, I need bread. We work ourselves to death thinking we must make our own manna. Egypt had done a number on God's people. It had formed them in all sorts of unhealthy ways. It had actually deformed them. They had become shells of what they were created to be. They didn't trust the one that they worked for. They were in competition with one another for scarce resources. Their heads down, their backs arched. So we just stuck in that position. Do the stories of the Israelites in the wilderness determine our future? The Israelites didn't seem to learn the lesson that, that God wanted to teach them. So are we stuck in the system we were always trying to secure our own way, trying to maintain control in this world? Well, the good news is that Jesus provides a better way. In Matthew chapter 4, we find the account of Jesus in the wilderness. Let's read that passage. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I don't think it's any accident that when Jesus is led into the wilderness, the first temptation he faces from the devil 
is to turn the stones into bread. Jesus had been fasting 40 days and 40 nights, so none of us would, would think negatively about Jesus if he just ate a little something. I mean, you talk about being hung, hangry 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, he could have turned these stones into bread. Can you imagine all those sweet baked loaves of gluten? Can you imagine how many people Jesus would have been able to feed if he had done that? With all that bread, he could have amassed a huge following. They would have made him king. In an instant, Jesus could have secured his place as ruler. A good PR rep would have begged Jesus to do this. But what, is, what does Jesus do? He doesn't opt for security. He doesn't take the road of self-sufficiency. He doesn't secure his way by amassing power. Jesus shows us what it's like to truly depend upon God. Jesus shows us what it's like to be human. To, this, to the temptation to live the way of the world, Jesus says in verse 4, man shall not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. And there it is. With the help of the Spirit, Jesus says no to temptation and yes to God. And all of this takes place in the wilderness with food. The nature of Jesus' kingship is decided over bread. Unlike the Israelites, Jesus doesn't avail himself of the bread just because he can. Rather, having been sensitized to the Spirit of God through fasting, Jesus recognizes that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Jesus has the power and the resources to do whatever he pleases, but he lays that all down because he trusts the Father to provide for him and for others. His kingdom would not come by building storehouses of bread. So, you may ask, what does all of this have to do with us? Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about how Jesus, in a world shaped by competing, competing kingdoms, is trying to form a group of people who embody the values and priorities of a heavenly kingdom. And so we, was, and so we prayed that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wants his followers to live into the kingdom that is coming and is already here. So what does all this stuff about daily bread have to do with us and with our lives today? To tell you the truth, I've, I've wrestled with this part this week. I've, I've struggled to figure out how to talk about the implications of this prayer in our lives. The truth is, for most of us, we're not going to die from a lack of bread. I had a roommate in seminary tell me every time I'd bring home a 12-pack of breadsticks from Fazoli's that I was going to die from too much bread. So in this world of excess, when it's not from a lack of bread, but too much, in this world of excess, what does it mean for us to pray that God would give us our daily bread? There, there are a bunch of ways I think we, we could go from here as we think about the implications of this prayer. But I want to spend just a few minutes just teasing out a few of those. And the first is this. As we pray for God to give us our daily bread, we are reminded that we are needy. To ask God for something that means that we don't have all the resources that we need. And this is so difficult for us to do. We like to be the feeder and not the fed. But to be reformed and reshaped in the way of Jesus means that we acknowledge our createdness. We acknowledge that we are created by the Creator. We need to acknowledge that we need help. I'm not so sure church folks are always the best at this. Sometimes, even on a Sunday morning, we act like we've, we have it all together. 
we, we have come from a home where it's been um, frantic trying to get, get to church and people, people have been yelling, there's clothes flying everywhere. We actually, we, when we come here and we act it all together when things are busting at the seams. What will people think if they knew this about me? What if they knew that our family life was a mess? It was a, about six years ago, one of the families in our life group had some sickness go through their home and it took them all down one after another. And my wife because she's a better Christian than I am, she asked them, she called them up and asked them if they needed anything. And the crazy thing is that they actually said yes, and they took her up on it. And so Monica went to the store and she got them a bunch of supplies. I think we have a picture of all that, of all that she got them. I know that for many of you, you've gone through this in these last two years. COVID went through your home and you couldn't get out to get what you needed. And so you called a friend or a neighbor or a family member to get what you needed. It only took a global pandemic for you to ask for help. It shouldn't take a global pandemic for us to ask for help from one another. We, it's okay for us to admit that we need something. We were made to be needy. The second implication of praying this prayer is that we need our wants and our desires to be shaped by God. We, we need to regularly confess and ask God daily for that which will sustain us. We may think we know what we need. We may think that we've got it figured out or we've figured out how to manage life to control our lives, but we need God to form and to shape our desires for that which we truly need. We need God to get the Egypt out of us, to get those old ways of living out of us so that we can newly receive God's gifts to us. We may not recognize them as God's gifts right away. We might ask, what is this? We may want to go back, but the way forward is so much better. We are always in the process of being shaped. But the question for us is, who is doing the forming? Who is doing the shaping? The pharaohs of the world want to shape us according to their agendas. Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and Twitter, they want to shape us too. They want us to be obsessed with how many likes or follows we get. The result of those from all of this will, will be the same. They will deform us so that we are bent over, head down, missing out on the gifts that God wants to pour into our lives. We need God to form and to shape our desires so that we look more and more like Jesus. Well, the final implication I want to talk about is this. We have to remember that as we pray this, that this is a corporate prayer. Eating is an us thing. Jesus didn't teach us to pray, God, give me, give me what's mine. Yet, we are, we, like, on the other hand, we are taught to pray, give us this day our daily bread. What I eat is connected to what you eat. This runs so, this runs so contrary to our American way of thinking. I work, I earn a paycheck, I put food on the table so I get to eat. Into our world, into our context, so then what does it mean for us to pray to God to give us our daily bread. In her book, The Joy of Living, Mother Teresa shared this story. She said, I will never forget the night an old gentleman came to our house and said that there was a family with eight children and they had not eaten. And could we do something for them? So I took some rice and went there. The mother took the rice from my hands, then she divided into two and went out. I could see the faces of the children shining with hunger. When she came back, I asked her where she had gone. She gave me a very simple answer. They are hungry also. 
and they were the family next door, and she knew that they were hungry. I was not surprised that she gave, but I was surprised that she knew. I had not the courage to ask her how long the family hadn't eaten, but I'm sure it must have been a long time. And yet she knew in her suffering, in her terrible bodily suffering, she knew that next door they were hungry also. The neighbor didn't live in our culture, probably didn't know the Lord's Prayer, but she knew there was only our rice, not my rice, even when her own children were hungry. When we pray for our daily bread, we do so in connection with with one another, with our neighbors. This is why we give out backpacks of uh, of food to kids from Dylan every week. This is why we provide space for the Boys and Girls Club to have programs after school at the peak. This is why we spent all that time and energy in the Imagine campaign, trying to raise money for things that will outlive us. In a world that says it's all about me and mine, Jesus is reminding us that it is only us. 